Well, I'm looking forward to that, maybe for different reasons than uh, <clears throat> some of the rest of you guys, <laughs> just saying. <coughs> there is a mystery in our U.S. Capitol building, and the mystery is not how do they get anything done with all the fighting, that's not the mystery, but the mystery has to do with the building itself, the, the Capitol building, as you may know, home to the Senate and the House of Representatives. And as a building, it's very impressive. It was built originally in 1800, although the construction began several years before that. And the building is a mystery. It's a mystery that relates to the construction of it. And the mystery starts with this picture right here. Uh, in this picture, that's George Washington, and he's laying the, the ceremonial cornerstone. And the cornerstone, you know, it's ceremonial, but it also has a purpose. It's laid first. It's the stone by which all the other stones are measured. So a building can't really be well built without some kind of a cornerstone, that straight and true corner that aligns all the rest of the stones going out from it. So the U.S. Capitol has this cornerstone, all-important part of the foundation that makes it work. George Washington laid it himself. But the mystery is that no one can find it. No one has seen it since the, the building was constructed. In fact, here's a contemporary picture of folks looking unsuccessfully for the cornerstone. Now, you can insert your own joke here about how our Congress functions without a cornerstone, but, uh, but this morning we're going to talk about our own dependence on a cornerstone. This morning we're going to continue our series in 1 Peter and we'll see that, that Peter describes Jesus as the cornerstone for us, just like we sang about a few minutes ago. That stone, the cornerstone, is our, our foundation, the stone by which we should measure our own spiritual lives by. And we've called this series Exiles. That's the word Peter uses right at the beginning of this book in order to describe us. It's a really fitting title for our study, fitting for our culture right now. And i got to say, you know, I don't consider myself a, a very trendy person. I don't think of myself as a trendsetter, but, uh, but this week I was feeling pretty good about myself because, uh, you know, I guess now that our services are online, a lot of people are able to watch them, and uh, I saw that the title Exiles was, was a trending topic all over the country. I was really excited about that. I mean, having our preaching go out and impact all over the world, wonderful. Now, I'm sure... The fact that this title, Exiles, was trending doesn't have anything to do with the fact that Taylor Swift dropped a new song called Exiles this week. I'm sure that has nothing to do with it. I'm going to take all the credit for that, and honestly, my lawyers advised me not to say anything else on the topic, so... But all joking aside, uh, this series, Exiles, has been a good exploration for us, and we're going to wrap it up uh, next week, uh, but this week, as we said, we want to explore this idea of Christ as our cornerstone. That's how Peter describes him, and it's such a helpful idea. For a bunch of exiles who've been scattered, we can take a lot of comfort in the fact that we still have a cornerstone. We still have a foundation that is unshaken. No matter how hard things get, no matter how crazy our world gets, we still have a cornerstone by which we can measure our lives, and that should give us exiles a lot of confidence and a lot of hope. So let's explore what Peter has to teach us about this cornerstone, how we can relate to him. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2 today. We'll start in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so this passage tells us we're being built. We're being built by God into something. And of course, just a few minutes ago, we celebrated the work of our pastoral search team. They're a, a huge deposit in helping this church be built into something. They shepherded our church through the process of identifying our lead pastor. And boy, I'm so glad we can show our appreciation to that team. Uh, but of course, you know the pastoral search team, they're not the ones doing the building. And of course, you know even Logan is not the one doing the building. Notice right here, we're being built up as we come to Him, the living stone, that cornerstone, Christ Jesus. He is the stone by which we all measure ourselves. He's the stone around which we're all united. And it's we who are being built up, not just some of us, but all of us. There's no distinction between the stones. We're all needed. You can't build something with just a few stones. We need all of us. Peter's presenting here this image of a community that's focused entirely on Jesus. It's a community that puts aside all, all, all preferences, quarrels, comfort zones, just for the sake of being together, becoming living stones. The entire purpose of this community is all about knowing God, worshiping Him as King, about making Him known in the world. Understand, this is totally contradictory to the consumerist approach to Christianity that's so prevalent today, this consumerist approach which puts uh, personal desires for what our church should be like on the throne and tempts every one of us over and over again to just passively disengage or maybe even to completely walk away from a church that doesn't meet all our standards. I mean, we all get tired of church because we all get tired of setting aside our preferences for the sake of others. We're human. But we all, all of us together are being built up together. We need one another or else we won't be built. And you know, so many people, we spend a lot of time and energy thinking about the perfect church, our dream church. In fact, I came across a collection of online reviews for churches, and that's its own thing right there. But these are not specific to Trinity, thankfully, but they could be, you know. Uh, I just want to share a sampling of some of the church reviews online. Listen to the kind of things that people are focused on. One says this, I have two small boys, ages three and six, who can't get ready fast enough to go to church on Sunday because of all the attention they place on kids. From the pastor to the coffee shop, everything rates five stars. Good to know where you stand on that, yeah. Uh, another one says, the full ultimate experience, great for the family, great for the kids, five stars. Here's another one, can never get to talk to the pastor, think it's gotten too big for the one-on-one -on -one time we used to get at the end of the beginning of the service with the pastor. It's almost like trying to visit an actor, two stars. Child care, exceptional, five stars. It was too commercial. It didn't feel like a church. Two stars. They may have the best stage set up I've ever seen in my life. I absolutely love the light show and the humongous TV screens. Exclamation point. If you're looking for a church with great music and message, this is the place to go. Five stars. Well, positive or negative, you know, these reviews just demonstrate how well we've been trained as consumers of church. 
We're, we're connoisseurs of religion, like a, a wine critic who's judging the, the balance, the depth, the complexity, the, the finish of a vintage. We're, we're swirling our church experience around in a glass to judge all the ministries, the, the depth of its teaching, the, the offerings that it has for us, how it makes it feel, it makes us feel at its finish. We're just very well-trained consumers. And it's so easy for us to have a consumerist approach when it comes to committing to church. Do I like the worship style? Is the preaching good enough? Is that church across town a better fit? Uh, but when we allow that kind of mindset to influence our spiritual lives, we've lost track of that cornerstone. Our faith becomes less about knowing and serving God and more about just finding a community that serves us and our own desires. Rather than trying to form community around our preferences, we got to allow ourselves to be formed by God and by His people. We have to be willing to be built up with each other, shaped around that cornerstone, Christ. Because Jesus, the living stone, He's building us up into something different. The stones that make up the building, they're not consumers, they're critical pieces. Each one of us is a part of the church, the body of Christ. So some dream church that we might long for, it's really a myth that doesn't exist. No church gets five stars because God is, is not building us just to come and attend church. He's building us to be the church. He's not just calling us into a relationship with Him, but He's calling us to be in a relationship with each other, with all the parts of His body. That's so important to remember. I mean, think about it. If, if God just wanted us to relate to Him, then the moment a person got saved, they'd just be zapped up to heaven to be with Him. But God keeps us here as exiles, and He does it so that He can build us into something, a community that relates to each other, that shows the world what God is really all about. Theologian Gordon Fee, he says it this way, he says, God is not just saving individuals and preparing them for heaven. Rather, He's creating a people among whom He can live and who in their life together will reproduce God's life and character. So see, our goal is not just to, to wait out this life as exiles, to, to bide our time, make ourselves comfortable until the next life. God saves us, and then He leaves us here so we can be built up into something that's going to advance the gospel. We all have a part to play. We're all stones contributing together. This dream of chasing after the perfect church, it's nothing new, though. Listen to these words from a famous pastor. He says, if I had never joined a church till I'd found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, give themselves to the Lord's people. The church is faulty, but that's no excuse for you not joining it if you are the Lord's. These words seem so contemporary. They, they speak right to the heart of so many church attenders today. But in fact, that quote comes from Charles Spurgeon, a sermon he delivered in 1891. So there's nothing new under the sun, right? Our human nature has always been to, to look for ourselves first, look out for our own interests, but God is building us into a community that looks out for each other, that puts others' interests ahead of our own. And notice in this passage what we're being built into. Now, I, I preach out of the, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. I like it a lot, but it actually flops right here 
because almost every other translation tells us we're being built into a spiritual house. That's not quite as clear here in this translation, but other translations make it much more clear. We're being built into a spiritual house, a spiritual house. And let's remind ourselves just a bit about the the situation of this letter. Peter's writing to a group of churches who are scattered, right? They're not gathered together in one big group, one big facility. They're scattered all over the different regions. And I can't help but think that's a little bit like us right now. We have a group of us here in person. We have another group scattered all around our valley watching online, some with their family, some gathered with other families or growth groups, that kind of a thing. But, but that's our situation. And it's not a great thing. It's not a great situation for sure, but it can be a good thing, meaning it can help us remember that this building, this physical space is not the church. We, us, People, Jesus' followers, are being built into a spiritual house. The church is us. It's not this building. It's a spiritual house, not just a physical house. In fact, even Peter who writes this, he's got a perfect moment to to insert himself into the letter. You remember, Peter's not his original name, right? He was Simon, and then Jesus said, I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock or stone, because on this rock... I'm going to build my church. So Peter was renamed, given this special call out by Jesus that his confession of Jesus' true identity would be the rock, the foundation for God's church. And so Peter, he could take this moment to say, well, you know, I'm the original rock, but, but you're all being built into stones. I mean, smaller stones, but helpful, kind of filling in the gaps where the big stones aren't, right? Peter doesn't do that. He puts all of us as equally important. We're all being built into a spiritual house. It takes all of us. We all have to be contributors, not just consumers. And as this passage goes on, it becomes clear why that idea is so important, why all of us are needed to build this spiritual house. In fact, the reason it's an idea that's, that's come up already in this book a couple of times, it's because we're chosen All of us are chosen. Look at this section of 1 Peter again. We're going to start in verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. And the one who believes in Him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, that stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim all the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Peter quotes a couple of Old Testament passages here, and he does quite a bit throughout this letter. He calls us followers of Jesus, uh, followers of Jesus uh, chosen, a chosen race, a holy nation, picking up on the themes we've already explored in this letter. And this whole section really is a section, uh, a series of contrasts, of opposites even. In fact, I notice six different pairs of contrasts. Peter contrasts uh, attitudes about Jesus, who was chosen by God, rejected by people. He tells us Jesus is a cornerstone for some, 
but a stumbling block for others. He contrasts believers and the unbelieving, those who are chosen and those who are destined to disobey. He contrasts darkness and light, those who are God's chosen people who've received mercy, those who have not. And it all centers around this reality that we are chosen. We're chosen by God. And that word translated chosen, it's the word electos, elected. It puts us right face-to-face with a doctrine that's a bit challenging for a lot of folks, this doctrine we call election. So I want to just briefly touch on it because uh, it's important to this passage, it's important for us to understand. Election, simply stated, is an act of God. It's God's decision before creation choosing some people to be saved, not on account of their own merit, but simply because of His own sovereign will and pleasure. So God chose some people to be saved, and the Bible's clear in a couple of places that He made that choice before He even created the world. You can see some of the passages that reference that in your sermon notes there. The, the timing of that decision, of God's decision to choose us, is a really important detail because it affirms the fact that God did not wait around for us to do something good, and then He chose us. He didn't wait to see how faithful we might be, and then He elected us. No, before we were ever created, that decision was made. So that's the basic definition of election, chosen by God, not on our own merit, but simply because of God's sovereign will and pleasure. And there's a lot of different things we could say about election, but I just want to share how the New Testament presents the idea. It helps us figure out how we we should think about election ourselves. It's It's a challenging doctrine, but there's really three key things that the New Testament presents when it talks about election. First, it's it's presented over and over again as a comfort. That's not always the way that we think about it, but we've seen that here even in 1 Peter. As as Jesus' followers, our our chosenness is a comfort to us. We live here as exiles, even though we experience suffering, we can take comfort in the fact that we are chosen by God. Romans 8, 28, that famous passage agrees, all things work together for good for those who are called by God. Our chosenness is a comfort, especially in difficult times. Election is also presented in the Bible as a reason to praise God. It sometimes makes people uncomfortable thinking only some are chosen, but in the Bible, over and over, it's presented as a reason to praise God. We shouldn't necessarily ask why some are not chosen, but really we should wonder why any of us are chosen at all. Many years ago, my aunt was diagnosed with cancer, and we went to visit her not too long after her diagnosis. She lives in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And she's an amazing woman. She was a career missionary, lived in Africa, did all kinds of amazing ministry. And we were talking to her about her diagnosis, and I'll never forget this. Somebody said something like, uh, I just can't imagine why this would happen to you. And her response floored me. She said, well, I don't sit around and wonder, why me? I think, why not me? Why wouldn't God allow this in my life to grow me closer to Him? That's exactly it. Election is a mystery. Why would God choose any of us, really? But it's a reason to praise Him. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says this, but we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation. Paul thanks God precisely because of the election of the Thessalonian believers. That diminishes our own pride because we recognize it's God's work in us that leads to our salvation. We praise God for it, not praising ourselves. The third way that election shows up in the New Testament is as an encouragement to share the gospel. Again, that's not often the way that we think about election. 
But the Apostle Paul, he suffered so much bringing the gospel to places all over the world, and he says this, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. The reality of election is what drives Paul to share the gospel even more so that the gospel message reaches all those who need to hear it. And it should drive us to advance the gospel even more. Again, election is a mystery in part because we know that God desires the salvation of all people. First Timothy tells us that. It should drive us to share the gospel more and more and more. So that's a very brief flyover of this important doctrine of election. There's so much more we could say. Maybe all I've done is raise more questions than answers. I hope not. But, uh, but the point of Peter addressing it here is to encourage us, to humbly remind us of our own chosen status. Christ has chosen us, and He is the one building us into a spiritual house for His glory. So because we're chosen, because we're being built into a spiritual house, this has a profound impact on us. Peter goes on in this little section of Scripture to highlight some of the ways this should impact us. And specifically, he tells us the impact it has on our relationships. Look with me at the end of the passage, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So God's work in us affects, uh, first, our relationship with God. He chose us, He's building us, and as this passage here, it, it tells us why. It's so that we can proclaim His praise. That's His purpose. And once again, this highlights that we are all contributors, not just consumers. God desires us to proclaim His praises, and the Bible is clear that He equips us to do just that. He's building us up into a spiritual house, and each of us play a part in that. We're all given unique spiritual gifts, and those uh, gifts uh, give us the ability to be contributors. We're being built up, and we have the job of building others up in this spiritual house. Another relationship it impacts is our relationship with other believers, if we're all being built together, then we need to be able to relate well to each other. And as we've already said, God chooses us in part so that we can relate to each other. In those relationships, we demonstrate what God is all about. And understand, it's not just us who are being built. Remember, Peter's writing to a group of churches scattered all over a region. Well, the same is true for us. Our church body here is being built right alongside so many other churches in our valley. We're all collectively being built. And there's no doubt that the average person in town, they lump all kinds of Christians together. I mean, the smart ones, the crazy ones, the passionate ones, the complacent ones, the angry ones, whatever. All Christians are the same to the person who's on the outside. So this impacts the way we relate to other believers, even those we don't have that much in common with. The way we relate to fellow believers is really summed up in this passage, these verses we just read. Look at verse 10 again. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That key word is mercy. That's how God treated us. That's how we should treat each other. There's a lot of different ways mercy shows up, a lot of ways we should treat each other. Pastor Logan's going to preach on all the ways we're supposed to treat one another coming up here soon. But for today, just that simple concept of mercy is a good place to start. Treating each other with the same kind of merciful love that God has given us. 
There's one final relationship that's impacted by what God is doing to build up His chosen people, and that's our relationship with unbelievers. Again, this whole passage has a lot of contrast. One of the contrasts is between the elect and those who are not believers. And in a way, uh, the, the same ways we've already outlined are ways we should relate to non-believers. We should give praise to God, and we should act with mercy towards them, just as we've said. But there's one more verse in this passage that sums up pretty well how we should relate to non-believers. Look just a bit further down at verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day He visits. There's no question that non-believers are paying attention to the church. In fact, just this past week, I came across four, maybe five news articles from, from secular news sources that were all evaluating the church in America. And let's say they weren't particularly flattering evaluations. The world is watching. In fact, it reminds me of a story that uh, Pastor Warren Wearsby likes to tell. He says this, in the summer of 1805, a number of Native American chiefs and warriors met in a council at Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation of the gospel message by a Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. After the sermon, a response was given by Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs, And among other things, the chief said, Brother, you say there's but one way to worship and serve the Great Spirit. If there's but one way, why do you white people differ so much about it? Why not all agree, as you can all read the one book? He went on to say this. He says, Brother, we're told that you've been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We're acquainted with them. We'll wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, less disposed to cheat Native Americans, we'll consider again what you've said. Well, I don't know what the final result was for those Native Americans, but I could probably guess. You and I, we are being built together into a spiritual house. And it's not just for our own sake, not only for the sake of those who've been chosen by God, but but how we relate to others sends a powerful message to the watching world. We could send the right message if we keep ourselves aligned to that cornerstone, Jesus Himself. He's the one who does the work of building us, who gives us mercy enough to pass on to others for the praise of His glory. We pray with me? God, once we were not a people, we were scattered and selfish, and yet uh, you have called us, you've chosen us, you've made us a people, your people, and you've given us mercy. And we want to be responsive to you, Lord. We want to be aligning ourselves to that cornerstone. We want to be building ourselves into a spiritual house by surrendering ourselves to you. That's how we do it. And so we pray that you would keep building us, especially as we celebrate the great things that are coming in the future for us this morning, Lord. We want to be built into a spiritual house that gives you praise and glory and that reflects to the world all the goodness of who you are. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, in a moment, we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's table, and uh, if you did not have a chance to pick up your uh, communion cup, then you can 
raise your hand and we'll bring that around to you. We've got a couple of folks willing to do that. And as we, as we do turn our attention to this, I want to remind us once more about the very beginning of this passage. Because we've learned all about God's work in choosing us, His work in building us up. We've learned about the impact it has on our relationships. And I want us to just stick with the beginning of this passage because it points to our role in all of this. Peter summarizes our role right in verse 4. He starts off telling us, as you come to Him. That's the heart of our role. We come to God. And His work in us is what builds us up for His praises. We come to Him. And the way that we do that is through Jesus. Jesus has made a way for us to come to the Father. His death for us paid the punishment for our sins. Our sins created a barrier between us and God. Jesus' death removes that barrier so that we can come to Him. And that's one more reason for us to proclaim His praise this morning. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, these elements we partake of remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, the sacrifice that allows us to come to Him. The bread represents His broken body. The juice points us to His blood spilled for us. And in just a moment, we'll partake together. And as we do that, there's a couple of important reminders As we partake together, we want you to know uh, this table is open to any who have a personal relationship with Jesus. If you have turned to Christ as your Savior, uh, the forgiver of your sins, then you are welcome to participate alongside us. If that's not a decision that you can point to in your life, if that's not a decision you've made, then I would encourage you to use this time to reflect on God's work in your life. Reflect on God's mercy in your own life. It's not very often that we take the time to pause and reflect on how God has shown Himself in our lives, but you can do that now. You can come to Him. Additionally, I would be very remiss if I didn't extend the same warning that the New Testament extends. It's a warning against partaking of the Lord's Supper in what the Bible calls an unworthy manner. If you know in your heart you have unreconciled sin, if you're in open rebellion against God, if there's things that you need to work in your heart that's that's creating a barrier with your fellowship with God, then I would urge you to use this time to do that business with God. Don't let this moment pass without taking advantage of it. You can come to Him. And finally, on a very practical note, uh, we're using these prepackaged elements. Hopefully, you've uh, got yours now and... uh, uh, just be careful opening it. There's two lids. It's a little tricky, and uh, you've got to open both lids carefully. I'm going to give you a moment to do that now if you haven't done that already. Crinkling, dying down. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, we do proclaim the death of your Son. We proclaim it as a reason to praise you because it allows us to have a relationship with you. It's the pathway towards mercy that we talked about this morning, Lord. And so we, we take this time to uh, soberly reflect and also to celebrate your goodness. Goodness for us, goodness that cost your Son everything. And it's uh, in His name that we are being built up together, being nourished together at your table, and by the power of your Spirit, we pray that you would use that nourishment to guide us even this week as we go and reflect and proclaim the praises of you, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen.